1: This is the John Fuglesang podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fuglesang. Welcome to Tell Me Everything here on the Shift of the Evening at Sirius XM Progress, taking your calls for the next three hours. Our number is 866-997-4748. We would love to hear from you. 866-997-GRIT is the number here at uh, our show studio. Well, we were in the studios last night. Tonight we are working from the home studios. I'm here in Manhattan. Thea's there in Brooklyn. Chris Houseelt's there in South Carolina. And we would love to hear from you. We have a great lineup of guests tonight. Uh, Wajahat Ali, one of our favorite journalists, will be joining us if he can get free in time. Natalia Reagan, one of our favorite comedians and primatologists, will be joining us to talk about more shit you can't say. Yes, I'm sorry, liberals, but the scientists and the historians are here to let us know. We are more bigoted than we realize, and there is certain shit you just shouldn't say anymore. It's a very fun segment you can use, (laughs) and you are free to take the advice or not as you so decide. Also, I'm really happy to have Jill Garvey with us tonight. She's chief of staff for the Western State Center, and she's devoted much of her career to responding to attacks on civil rights and other threats to disenfranchised American communities. Now that we are seeing anti-Semitism being mainstreamed in a way I never thought would happen in my life. I grew up on Long Island. I mean, anti-Semitism. Where I grew up, I I had incredible Jewish envy. I tried to convert when I was 15 years old, but my rabbi said I was too neurotic to become Jewish. Anyway, there's a lot to get to tonight, and of course, we will be bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble, taking your calls at 866-997-4748. We have a lot of great guests coming up in the weeks to come, but if you've missed our recent conversations with... Oh, God, Ken Burns or or Guillermo del Toro just the other day. You can hear all of those on the app, on demand, or on the John Fuglesang podcast. We are live and interactive. And hello to all of our day walkers who listen on the app, on the podcast, and on demand. You guys are always welcome to call us live some evening if you find yourself with something to do and your fingers are itchy. 866-997-4748. Guys, there's a lot to get to. We had no shortage of double talk and jive, malfeasance, disinformation and rank fuckery coming through the news today. Uh, And my God, there's a lot of anniversaries this date as well. There's a lot to unpack. And this show is The Great Unpacking. So thank you for being with us. Let's do it. Let's have a show. So today was a day of history. We had Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA. We had Don't Ask, Don't Tell for many years. That was always very silly. Obergefell, that ruling was, what, almost eight years ago. But as of today, we have the Respect for Marriage Act, which is now law. It passed the Senate and the House with what they're calling strong bipartisan support. We'll get to that in just a minute. But today, Joe Biden signed the Respect for Marriage Act into law, granting federal protections to same-sex and interracial couples, and really marking just a a milestone in a decades-long fight for marriage equality, 927 words. That's it. That's the whole act after all of this back and forth. 927 words that were signed into law. 927 words that will protect a cherished right for so many people. Now, this does not force states to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. This does not force anyone to not be the bigot their hearts tell them they should be. But this does require that people be considered married in any state as long as the marriage was valid in the state where it was performed. It's just about protecting rights, not even about expanding them. That It's a huge victory, and yet it's so little. Here's Joe Biden today, signing the Respect for Marriage Act before a large crowd at the White House.
3: Well, today's a good day. Yeah! A day America takes a vital step toward equality, toward liberty and justice, not just for some, but for everyone. Everyone. Toward creating a nation where decency, dignity, and love are recognized, honored, and protected. Today, I sign the Respect for Marriage Act into law. Deciding whether to marry who to marry is one of the most profound decisions a person can make. And as I've said before, and some of you might remember, on a certain TV show 10 years ago, <laughs> I got in trouble. Uh, marriage, I mean this to involve my heart, marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love? And will you be loyal with that person you love? It's not more complicated than that. And the law recognizes that everyone should have the right to answer those questions for themselves without the government interference.
1: And it's true, Biden did it first ten years ago. We'll get to that in a second. Vice President Kamala Harris officiated this first ever same-sex marriage in the state of California back nine years ago after Prop eight was overturned. She was there today at the ceremony as well. Now here's the thing. Again, this bill does not require. All 50 states to allow same-sex marriage. That's the current law under the Obergefell versus Hodges decision from 2015. What this does is that the Supreme Court were to overturn Obergefell and all those previous state laws against same-sex marriage came back into effect. I know, right? How, how crazy is that to think of a Supreme Court taking rights away from an American? It's impossible. But if it happened, The Respect for Marriage Act would still require those states and whatever federal government was in place to respect marriages that were conducted in places where it's legal. There are religious exceptions, which is the special kind of bullshit we can talk about. Republican supporters have emphasized the elements in this Senate version that protect nonprofit and religious organizations from having to ever provide support for same-sex marriage. So isn't that great? You can still hate gay people and pretend Jesus hates gay people the way you do. (sighs) Guys, again, Jesus, read the book, Not a Homophobe. New Covenant, you don't live under Leviticus. If you claim to be Christian, you don't get to be a homophobe. Congratulations. You can drop the bigotry and you get to eat bacon. Here's Joe Biden telling the crowd, there is but one way to combat hate in America.
3: Racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, they're all connected. But the antidote to hate is love. This law and the love it defends strike a blow against hate in all its forms. And that's why this law matters to every single American, no matter who you are or who you love. This shouldn't be about conservative or liberal, red or blue. No, this is about realizing the promise of the Declaration of Independence, a promise rooted in a sacred and secular beliefs, a promise that we're all created equal. We're all entitled to what Abraham Lincoln called an open field and a fair chance.
1: Now, here's the best part about this story. I'm wondering, what are the right-wingers going to say about this? How are they going to push back? How are they going to just go ahead and disparage all this? They really didn't have a case of it. Charmy said, watch Fox News. They weren't really talking about it much on Fox. I I, I know. I sat through Brett Baer and Kennedy. They're shying away from it. Because what can they do? They can either indulge in the hate and prove we're all right about them, or... (laughs) They can frame it like it's a good thing and piss off the bigots who populate their audience. I mean, Ron Johnson called this unnecessary, and that's the number one critique you'll find. And boy, did I find it all over social media. Right wing people on the Respect for Marriage Act just saying over and over again, it's not necessary. You already had the right. Why are they doing this as political grandstanding? That's all it is. Joe Biden is just wants to be in a pride parade. And it's you already have the right with the Supreme Court. So why do they do it? And I heard that a lot. Why? Why are they doing this? You have the right, Democrats, gay people. Obergefell versus Hodges, 2015. Why'd they do it? Well, allow me to tell you why they did it. They did it because this Supreme Court cannot be trusted. Let me say that again for y'all in the back, for for some of y'all watching. You know, Tucker might be kind of slow. This Supreme Court. Cannot be trusted. This Supreme Court has at least three, really four members of it who lied under oath about Roe v. Wade being settled law to get their job and then unsettle it. They did it because Clarence Thomas, who in his June concurrence with the decision to gut Roe v. Wade, wrote the high court should also examine previous rulings that legalize the right to buy and use contraception without government restriction Uh, that legalized same-sex relationships. That's Lawrence v. Texas. And, of course, marriage equality, Obergefell v. Hodges. Why did they do it? Because the longest-serving member of the Supreme Court said they were going to go after it and take marriage equality away. The biggest threat to marriage equality is five straight men wearing long black dresses. Why'd they do it? They did it because the fake Christians still think being shitty to gay and trans people has something to do with the teachings of non-homophobe Jesus. They did it because demonizing marginalized groups is the game of choice for the two leading amoral doughy contenders for the Republican presidential nomination. Both Trump and Ron DeSantis burnish their amoral mob boss thug cred by unnecessary cruelty to trans people. And we've seen them do it. We've seen Trump be needlessly cruel to trans soldiers, guilty of the crime of wanting to serve this country. And we've seen DeSantis do it to be cruel to trans children and their families. I mean, Twitter now is a place where you can say, hey, you know, I I think transgender people have rights. And some Elon Musk fan will call you a groomer within five minutes. Here's another one. This is Joe Biden also urging protection of trans children from the creeping fascism and fear-based lawmaking on the right.
3: We need to challenge the hundreds of callous, cynical laws introduced in the states targeting transgender children, terrifying families, and criminalizing doctors who give children the care they need. We have to protect these children so they know they are loved and that we will stand up for them.
1: Ah, thank God. 80-year-old guy. He gets it. Why'd they do it? Why'd they do this when you already have the Supreme Court ruling from 2015? They did it because both senators in Florida, Rick Scott and Marco Rubio, voted against the Respect for Marriage Act. And there's a very good chance that if Ron DeSantis becomes the next president, he would overturn both Obergefell and what the hell? Why not Loving as well? Democrats did it because they didn't codify Roe v. Wade when they had the chance. We've heard this many times back when Barack Obama had a brief 60 vote majority for all of uh, maybe 30 days in his first term. They didn't think they should go ahead and make Roe v. Wade in federal law. They had other things in their mind. They were trying to pass health care for everybody or at least Obamacare for everybody. So they didn't do it. They're getting criticism for it now. Why didn't you think about the future back then? So they're doing it now. Respect for Marriage Act is a stopgap the Republican Supreme Court justices and many of their politicians would be fine overturning Obergefell. And we know they'd be fine overturning Lawrence v. Texas, which essentially makes being gay and enjoying it legal. And then once they would make being gay illegal, and that's what overturning Lawrence v. Texas would be, well, then even even a little bit of marriage equality would be meaningless. They did it because of Public servants like Congressman Vicki Hartzler, who became very famous last week, even though marriage equality has been the law of the land for seven years, here she is, like in a time machine from a Carl Rove Wayback Machine in '04, warning you about how letting gay people be happy is somehow going to take something away from you.
4: And pray that my colleagues
3: will find the courage to join me in opposing... This misguided and this dangerous bill. I yield back.
1: Gentlewoman's time is... Oh, there she goes. She was great. I bet you never heard of her before that, right? Another one of these Congress people been serving for years, but has never done anything worth you knowing their name until they pulled the public bigotry card. Why'd they do it? You know why Democrats did it? Every House Democrat voted for it. Because they believe in it. But it's bipartisan, right? We keep hearing that. It's robustly bipartisan. Yeah. Okay. Every Democrat voted for it. Twelve Republican senators voted for it. Thirty-nine Republican House members joined all Democrats and all independents in both chambers to pass this bill. Why'd they do it? Because 169 House Republicans voted against the Respect for Marriage Act. Yeah. Oh, 39 voted for it but 169 voted against it. Oh, 12 senators in the GOP voted for it, but 36 Senate Republicans voted against it, which kind of tells you the majority of Republicans do not respect the legitimacy of same-sex or interracial marriage. And if they do, they're too terrified of how bigoted the folks back home are. They did it (laughs) because Joe Biden is proof that old white men can still grow and learn and evolve and be better and be part of progress, not just sneer at progress for ratings or votes. That brings me back to 10 years ago, 2012, in the midst of a very heated re-election campaign. Barack Obama was going up against Mitt Romney and the administration could have played it safe on this issue. You know, Barack Obama supported gay marriage back in the 90s. And then, of course, when he ran for president and a senator, he said he was against that. So he was waiting for the right excuse, the right time to come out and do it. It was the VP, Joe Biden. It was the old white man. Let's never forget, even before Barack Obama, who came out first for marriage equality. Here's a clip from Vice President Biden 10 years ago.
3: Who do you love and will you be loyal to the person you love and that's what people are finding out is what what all marriages what they're root are they're about whether they're marriages of lesbians or gay men or heterosexuals
1: is that what you believe now that's are you, what I believe
3: and you're comfortable with same-sex marriage now I, I look I am vice president of the United States of America um, the president sets the policy I am absolutely comfortable with the fact that men marrying men, women marrying women, and heterosexual men and women marrying women are entitled to the same exact rights, all the civil rights, all the civil liberties. And quite frankly, I don't see much of a distinction uh,
1: beyond that. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Look, what was your day or occasion or person that helped you wake up from homophobia? If you were born in the 20th century, You were probably raised in a homophobic community. And if you're listening to this channel, somewhere along the line, most likely between childhood and adulthood, you figured it out. You realize that gay people having what you have takes nothing away from you. You realized that being gay is natural. Hating gay is a lifestyle choice. Maybe you're Christian and you realize that your Bible with the Jesus parts doesn't actually say anything against gay men. Maybe you just met some gay folks or some lesbians or some bisexual people or some transgender people and realized you had been programmed to be a dick by a pack mentality. What opened your heart? Because I see how far my country's come in just my silly little lifetime. I was a homophobic kid. I sure was. You're raised to be a homophobic boy by your peer group if you grew up where I did, out on the Isle of Long. Oh, it was easy. And the best thing about being a homophobe in the 20th century, it was moral. It was a group you were allowed to hate. The Bible says it's an abomination, right? Uh, Somewhere. There's no zeal like hate that's been given sanction. Like Donald Trump gave people permission to hate. Well, you grow up just knowing, look, there's bad people. I could tell you about the teachers who said bigoted things to me, about the CCD Sunday school teachers who said bigoted things about gay people to me. It was acceptable. And then I got lucky. I was into theater as a kid. I started doing work at a regional theater when I was 11 years old. I was in a production of Hamlet when I was 12. My parents, who were wonderful, supported me, and they would drive me home from rehearsals late at night, or adult actors would drive me home from rehearsals late at night. My life was simple. I would get home from school, where I'd get beaten up all day. I'd do my homework. I'd go to the theater, and I'd work on Shakespeare plays or Gilbert and Sullivan or Neil Simon. And I was around gay people. And it took me a long time to realize they were gay because I was a stupid fucking homophobic kid. And then one day I realized, oh, wait, Brent's gay, Liam's gay, Winston's gay. I'm a dick. And I realized I don't hate gay people. I love them and they're kind to me. And more than one or two forgave me for being a stupid homophobic child. I was lucky. I turned into the kid in high school that gay kids came out to. I, I, I went to AIDS protests in like the 80s and 90s. I walked in my first AIDS march, I think, in 1991 and two of my best friends from high school withdrew their pledges once they found out that the money went to gay men's health crisis. Sorry, man. Just as as, as a Christian, I can't do that. I, I can't have my money support organization like that. Sorry, sorry. I've been going to pride marches since the 90s. I know how much America's gotten better because I've seen how much I got better. And I got a long way to go. I'm I'm fucked up on many areas. But I was raised to hate. I was raised to be a bigot. Not by my parents, just by living in America. I figured out it was fucked up, I tried to get better, and I see that happening all over this country. According to Gallup's poll in May, 71% of Americans who responded said same-sex marriages should be recognized by law as valid. Back in 1996, when Gallup started polling on this issue, the year of DOMA, only 27%. Only 27% to 71%. Guys, this is why I believe in the American dream. Not because of our capitalists, not because of the power of Wall Street, not because of our ability to bomb the crap out of third world nations of brown people. No, I believe in the American dream because I've seen progress happen with my own eyes. It happened in America, America led, and it happened because of a plague. I've seen devastation where gay people were horrified and they stopped waiting for the government to come help. And they demanded equality, they demanded justice, their straight allies came out, people risked their jobs, their livelihood, their lives in many cases, and gradually, 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 the culture began leaving the bigots behind. So that's why I'm patriotic, that's why I do this show. I've witnessed in my life that we as a people are getting better, are getting kinder, are becoming more emotionally intelligent, and the leaders will eventually follow why they do it. They did it because if Obergefell falls, then queer Americans in 35 states are going to have to travel to get married. But at least when they come home, their marriage will still be valid. Oh, and by the way, Donald Trump had respect for marriage, too. But that was an act.
5: The
2: comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana.
1: and welcome back. I'm John Fuglesing. If you missed our conversation with Guillermo del Toro about his incredible new animated film of Pinocchio, you can catch that on the podcast, on the app or Sirius XM on demand. Okay. Earlier today um, in DC, our friend Jamie Raskin, chairman of the subcommittee on civil rights and civil liberties, had a hearing to talk about the ongoing threat to American democracy posed by white supremacist ideologies. I'm really glad they're at least asking the questions. By now, of course, we've had to accept the fact that antisemitism is really having a moment. And we're seeing not just Donald Trump, not just Kanye West saying the sort of shocking things that would destroy a career 10 years ago, but a real mainstreaming of far-right extremism, particularly on Twitter. Now, you can look at all the stats to see how much the occurrence of the N-word or anti-Semitic terms or the other F-word have gone up. It seems that Elon Musk right now is deliberately platforming militant radicals and mainstreaming right wing hate groups. Is he doing it because he's a bigot or is he doing it because the left right fighting has greater engagement and makes his sight look stronger? It doesn't matter. All we know is the hate is being exploited by powerful forces. So Jill Garvey is chief of staff for the Western State Center. She's devoted much of her career to responding to attacks on civil rights and other serious threats to the more disenfranchised American communities. Much of her expertise was developed working with Center for New Community, where she served as an associate director and then the executive director until 2015, and she joined Project RP, which is a community defense network in Chicago's Rogers Park neighborhood. With fellow community leaders, she made a rapid response and community alert system that would let on the local level Community members rapidly respond to ice raids or to any racist or xenophobic harassment or violence. Earlier today, the great Eric Ward was testifying for uh, for Representative Raskin. It's a great pleasure to have Western State Center's own Jill Garvey here on Sirius XM. Welcome.
4: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. Um, c- can I ask a couple of dumb questions just off the off the top? How do we how are we defining Christian nationalism at this point?
4: oh well um so so i think christian nationalism is defined much in the same way that um white nationalism is in the sense that um it purports to um uh define america as a nation for white christians yeah and i I think i think it's important to to distinguish between nationalism white nationalism and white supremacy so we often talk about um we talk about we we often interchange white supremacy and white nationalism, Very right? And, um there's a more sort of official academic way of defining them. This is how I understand them. White supremacy is a system of of control. White nationalism is a is a a system of um extermination,
1: wow, yeah. It, it, it seems that it comes back to this core belief that real Americans are Christians and real Christians adhere to a certain set of political beliefs that may or may not have anything to do with what's actually in the Bible. But it, 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 are you as disturbed as I am to see how the mainstreaming of white supremacist ideology, especially by oh. the second richest man in the world, is seriously catching on here one fifth of the way through the 21st century?
4: yeah i i mean I, I think it is very disturbing i think it is a backlash though to um some of the progress we've made over the last five years i mean the last five years have been scary yeah. right and and hard um and i think that i think we're actually we're winning but yes you, you know Eric writes. Eric Ward, who you mentioned earlier, writes really eloquently about this. Just because you're winning, doesn't mean you have peace. So, so we're we're doing a lot of skirmishes, right? And and we're finding that our communities are are under attack from intimidation, right? I mean, there's a really concerted effort to. Um, to deploy these campaigns of intimidation You're right. what i find pretty scary right now is that um it's not always happening in a very organized way and it is easy <laughs> to respond to when it's organized right, right. and is a, is a great example um like what is his aim what is his goal what does he even belong to right he's sort of taking he's taken a lot of the latent Anti-Semitism and and white anxiety, outside the context of how we typically understand it and respond to it. Yeah,
1: I mean you're right. It seems that every time there's been any kind of progress, any kind of racial progress in this country, there's always been a terrible blowback that's usually been institutionalized. I mean, we got rid of slavery, and then we got Jim Crow and American apartheid. So we. Got civil rights a hundred years later, and that led to the drug war and the southern strategy. We finally got the first black president. That led to racist game show host clown. It, it does seem, though, that the anti-Semitism is not just about hate. I mean, how how important is the anti-Semitism as? one of the one of the factors in radicalizing new recruits. I mean, it seems like you've got to put out the anti-LGBT. You've got to put out the anti-African-American progress. Those people, the ones who are more upset about Colin Kaepernick's knee than Derek Chauvin's knee, they're always looking for a leader. And it seems like a lot of this anti-Semitism could be marketing to try to bring new people into a right-wing authoritarian fold.
4: I, I think it's a lever. For sure. I mean, if you don't mind, I'll I'll use an anecdote from my Please. my own life. So so I went to a high school that was almost entirely white, fair number of Jewish folks in the community, wealthy suburb, um, and it was a place where a, a new sort of enterprising neo-Nazi leader showed up to recruit uh, because this was like a very sheltered community mm-hmm. of white. People. And uh, he was really successful. Um, and so he recruited this network of teenagers. And what we saw was a lot of anti-Semitism because that's who could be targeted. That's who they could leverage against. Right. And it was the first lesson for me in how anti-Semitism really undergirds all forms of hatred. Right yeah. in the United States, I mean, it's three thousand years old. <laughs> yeah. Right, and and there's a there's a modern anti-Semitism that's deployed in you know, Great Replacement Theory, um, and then this uh, this group produced uh, some really some really violent individuals, and one of those individuals went on a shooting spree. So this is in the '90s. Right? This yeah. is in 1999. I think he went on the shooting spree, and he targeted asians jewish folks other people of color right i mean he he didn't know the people he was targeting you're right he just a jewish neighborhood and let loose right yeah. <laughs> went to a korean a korean american gathering and started shooting and it and we see it all the time now right i mean we well, see a tree these, of life
1: synagogue i mean, tree I
4: mean of yeah. and buffalo and yeah. uh, i think It was, I mean, it was incredibly scary because there were not a lot of people responding. There were organizations like Center for New Community and Western State Center responding, um, but not a lot of institutional response. So not a lot of response from schools, not response from government. Eventually nonprofits working with law enforcement got some response, uh, but it was very intense how quickly this person was recruited and then shifted into a violent actor, right? And it just, it happens really, really fast. That radicalization yeah. happens really fast. And uh, I also though have to remind myself, like I came out of exactly the same place as this person, the shooter. How so? Well, we were in the same community. We went to the same high school. He was just right. one year ahead of in school, right? And and I was not obviously not radicalized, and and the experience of, of watching all this unfold, and feeling really hopeless actually, you know, propelled me to devote my life to it. And it is just it 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 is scary, but we can reach people. It's it's harder now with Twitter. It now. it's much harder now with media environment,
1: the way it is, it, it, it is. And at the same time, with Twitter, with the media environment, the news does spread faster. I mean, you, you, we can make the argument that, you know, Twitter is giving a greater platform to anti Semites, while at the same time, it's because of Twitter, we all know who the anti Semite of the day is, uh, you know, what got me the most discouraged and concerned about Kanye West was that he was doing this for a long time. He was of course, (laughs) indulging in some grotesque anti-blackness for a very long time that bothered no one. And he began the anti-Semitic talk, and yet he was still invited on every talk show. Tucker Carlson deliberately cut out the most inflammatory, the first time I've ever heard of cable news, cutting out the stuff that was guaranteed to get ratings gold because it would make their prized special pet rapper look bad. Adidas didn't drop Kanye West because of his anti-Semitic statements. They dropped him because their stock price tumbled, because they wouldn't do anything against his anti-Semitic statements. It's almost like a lot of us are kind of guilty of thinking that anti-Semitism was something that had been conquered in a previous century.
4: I think we're guilty of thinking it had been conquered in a previous century, and I think we also are guilty of thinking that remembering the Holocaust is enough. Yeah. It's super. Important. I mean, it's so important, right? I, I mean, I got, I got Holocaust education as a child, and it was deeply impactful. Yeah. And it's so important, but um, it's not quite the same as understanding what anti-Semitism is, mm-hmm. and how, and 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 how it is absolutely essential to white nationalism, right? And that that understanding is in the, the period right after. The successes of the
1: civil rights movement that's right let me ask you about the targeting of lgbtq people um Mm -hmm. because it seems like you know i began the show talking about today's signing of the uh of, of the marriage act And um, the right has had a pretty hard time demonizing this one. A a few have said it's unnecessary, but generally they've shifted the narrative. They know that they can't get away with naked hatred towards LGBT people. So suddenly it's the Ron DeSantis groomer factory. And specifically, it's this um, it's this right wing pogrom against drag performances. It, it, It seems like it's part of an overall effort to actually find a way to make homophobia great again and turn people out into the streets with threats of violence.
4: Oh, it absolutely is. And, and I think they don't, they don't have to be explicitly anti LGBT, right? I mean, they, they are in many respects, but they are threatening violence. And so people are really scared, right? There's a major chill over communities, um, that are trying to be more visible. And, um, it's terrifying it's terrifying like you these days you don't you don't have to um say anything blatantly anti you know trans you you just have to yeah. threaten to show up at a, at a pride event right or a
1: drag. Or just say, hey, I, ca- I I really care about junior high school girls sports. That really is the issue that that unites most Americans is a commitment to the integrity of junior high school girls sports. And that's why instead of talking about solutions to inflation, uh, let's talk about this outreach. And, and we're seeing it happen across the GOP outrage sphere where they've sort of found a way to backdoor homophobia right back in. This time it's under the guise of caring about the children, the children who are being groomed where while they never had a problem with children her being groomed to be bigots, but now it's between the, the children being groomed and the transgender, fully grown men competing as young girls. It just sort of seems like they can't give up on their greatest hits because they're not going to win elections on love.
4: No, they aren't. <laughs> no, they aren't. And, uh, and, and it is, it's, it's the same bigotry that they peddle over and over again. They just package it a little bit differently every time. Um, pick a slightly different target. I think there's there's an anecdote, right, is to just full stop, you know, resource local communities to respond. Mm -hmm. I I just think it's, you have to just throw everything you can behind local leaders, municipal leaders who are willing to to push back. And that's harder in places like Florida, obviously but um you know there was just there was just those two events in florida um that were targeted that's right uh, a couple of weeks ago and um happened right after um it happened right after the colorado shoot
1: yeah it's incredible and, and we just saw in, in ohio last weekend uh, the cops appeared to be in coordination with the anti-lgbt protesters
4: yeah and that's that's part of it, too, is is put, you know, put a lot of pressure on law enforcement to root out extremism. Mm-hmm. Uh, law enforcement and the military have to root out extremism. It's pretty well documented now that that they have a problem. Yes. And evident when when they show up at these events and they pal around with, you know, the armed paramilitary yeah. members.
1: I mean, Joe Biden called that out in his convention speech two summers ago that it had to be rooted out. Of course, that's a whole different level of trying to <laughs> trying to monitor for hate speech. You know, um, Lindsay Schubiner, uh, from Western State Center had a great piece online recently called Eight Things to Know to Protect Your Child from Bigotry Online. And I just thought, my God, I I, I read the piece. It was really good. But I just thought, I can't imagine this being put out before Elon and Twitter. It used to be we we're just afraid of our ch- kids being prey for predators online. Now it's like, oh, my God, the racist indoctrination is out there and they are casting as wide a net as possible.
4: So I, I live in a pretty progressive community. I have a decent number of children for and I um, hear a lot. I hear a lot of what kids are talking about, even in our sort of progressive bubble. And I hear yeah. things that honestly scare me a little bit. It's the same, you know, I really liked what you were saying in the opening segment about, you know, well, I was a homophobic kid, right? And we all yeah. were. Yeah. We all, you know, there, it was very common for for people to use gay slurs and, and think nothing of it. And I still hear those slurs. Yeah. From me too. And, and I hear a lot of other things. I also hear kids having, much more thoughtful conversations about race and, and discrimination and and fairness. And, um, so I, I feel hopeful and also a a little, um, I mean, pretty happy that there's resources like this that, you know, help parents. Guide their kids through those conversations. Uh, I mean, it's great when schools have that kind of curriculum, access to that kind of curriculum, but um, it has to happen at home too. You know, we all know those those there there are a lot of those infamous mass shooters whose parents are, you know, completely caught off guard. They had no idea that they've been radicalized. So it, can hap- it It really can happen to anybody.
1: You know, before I, l- I let you go, and I thank you for joining us, it, it does seem that on Twitter in certain quarters, um, free speech is being used to change the subject, right? Even though we always have always had limitations on our speech, the argument is we have to let the haters say whatever they want to say because we're praying to this God of free speech, never mind the fact that free speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences over the speech. Is there... <laughs> What is the simplest possible answer to why anti-Semitism has been shifting from fringe to mainstream? It can't just be because of a couple of famous men.
4: Oh, I don't think it's because of a couple of famous men. I think it's it's this changing media environment. So traditional media has diminished and social media has increased and many people are getting news from places that they would have never gotten news before i was i was talking the other day with a friend and i said in 1960 if someone came up to you with a with a board with a message written on it would you take that as fact (laughs) someone walked up to you with a with a poster board with a message on it would you accept it as fact absolutely not so our standards for consuming information have shifted or deteriorated pretty radically and yeah. i think the, the free speech issue is really uh central to that so you jill- know yeah oh sorry am i am i out of time you- that's okay we
1: got to hit our break but jill garvey is chief of staff of the western state center what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work
4: uh western western state org.
1: fantastic please come back and join us again i really appreciate it and thank you for all the work you do
4: thanks john thanks for having me
1: We will be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is Progress.
2: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
1: I'm John Fuglesink. Thanks so much for being with us. And I'm so pleased to welcome our next guest back to the show because I think he's one of the best journalists in the game. He's fearless. He's compassionate. He's the smartest guy in any room. Wajahad Ali is a Daily Beast columnist. He's a public speaker, a recovering attorney. Uh, he's got three cute kids. His first book is Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on Becoming American, which came out earlier this year. You've read his stuff in The New York Times, and The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. He co-hosts the Democracy-ish podcast with our good friend Danielle Moody. It is always a pleasure to welcome Wajahad Ali back to SiriusXM. Hello, sir. Thank
5: you. If I wasn't married, I could have gotten three dates off that amazing introduction. Uh, your check is in the mail, or as the kids say, I'll Venmo you. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much hey listen the nice thing about working in radio i only have to have guests that i really want to have it's a real pleasure um i'm, I'm glad you're with us tonight there's so much to get to and i, I want to talk about uh ronda but obviously and i want to talk to you about uh the andor finale as well sir i've been waiting to get you on the air to talk about andor because Lettuce. there's not enough discussion of andor in in the public discourse but um i i have to ask you about the same thing i asked our last guest from uh, the western state center in the previous hour How anti-Semitism is just kind of having a moment. And this is a threat that, you know, the FBI appears to be recognizing. You were talking about how the reports indicate the FBI is conducting three times as many domestic terrorism investigations than it was five years ago. And, And that's just Marjorie Taylor Greene. (laughs)
5: <laughs> the The number one domestic terror threat in the United States of America is white supremacist terrorism. It's kind of held the spot for a long time. It's seeded. It seeded the ground for a while to some other groups, but in the past few years, it's been having a moment coinciding with the election of the first black Muslim president. Thank you, white liberals, for voting for my brother Obama. And I'm sorry, black noticed... Muslim
1: president. Black Muslim president with a bad Christian pastor. Don't forget that part.
5: Yes, yes, yes. With with a Christian yes. pastor who prays uh uh in a church uh, uh to Jesus, but. But let's not let details because get in the way Christian, of our conspiracy Christian theories.
1: Pastor, who who actually served with distinction in Vietnam, and hates America. So yeah, I I, I appreciate how the right could see both sides of a complex issue.
5: Of course, of course. They, they, they love nuance. But what we're dealing with is the mainstreaming, <laughs> the reboot, if you will, because in addition to anti-Semitism coming back, we also have reboots. I'm old enough to remember the original scream, and now you have the reboot. So we're seeing the reboot of old white nationalist, white supremacist tropes and anti-Semitism. It's the same old story. At the turn of the 19th century, uh, you had this hateful conspiracy, the Protocols of Elders of Zion, uh, that was promoted in Russia and then got exported, came to America thanks to Henry Ford. Yes, that yes. Ford, who then mainstreamed That's it, one. which talked about a cabal of Jews who were secretly plotting to take over and weaken you know, Russian society. Well, now you have the deep state conspiracy theory. The replacement theory, rather the replacement lie, John, and I always want to take a little bit of time to connect the dots because people forget it is now the major conspiracy theory that is mainstreamed by Republicans to the point where a majority of Republicans believe this white supremacist conspiracy theory. Literally, it came from the swamps of the KKK and the Nazis that quote unquote the Jews are the head of an international cabal using black and brown folks and immigrants of color to weaken and replace western civilization and western civilization right. is doing a heavy lifting for white people and the reason That's why correct. it's the jews it's because black and brown folks are too intellectually inferior john to come up with this plot so of Indeed. course it's the jews it's the globalists it's george soros uh, mm-hmm. all basically you know synonyms for jews and it was always this type of uh dog whistle then it became a little bit more pronounced with trump and the, you know the use of globalists and then Kanye and Nick Fuentes went full Hitler. And as we all know, never go full Hitler, only half Hitler. Mm-hmm. But apparently now yeah. you can go full Hitler with the GOP.
1: I mean, going full Hitler didn't actually work for Hitler. I don't know why it's going to work for a Mar-a-Lago Nazi Thanksgiving. But, uh, you know, it, it just seems like it's, it's having a moment. And one thing I've always said is, you know, Donald Trump didn't invent any of this. I, I, I view it as America's like an old couch. Mm. And Donald Trump is the black light. And he is showing some very nasty stains that have actually been there for quite a long time. And in turn, he gave people permission to be their worst selves. We, we talked about this, how, how every president, even Bush, who I still think is a worse president than Trump, appealed to the better angels of our nature. Trump was the first to come out and say, hey, folks, look at me. I'm a big fucking racist jerk off. And you can be too. And that's just fine. And it seems like that movement is doing just fine without donald trump right now um especially twitter who knew that the one thing that site needed (laughs) was for anyone to be verified even if they're not and for anti-semites to have a, a, a place to roam
5: yeah and you're speaking about twitter and it's you know there's there's a fire hose of just nonsense and hate that people forget that andrew anglin a nazi and i'm not just throwing that word around casually i mean literally a nazi is now platformed by Elon Musk. Andrew That's Anglin right. r- re- uh, runs this white supremacist site called the Daily Stormer. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Anglin on his own a few years ago said that I don't need a TV show cuz Tucker Carlson's show is Daily Stormer TV. He literally says all of our talking points. This is Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, ladies and gentlemen, whom yes. white nationalists say is mainstreaming all of their talking points. So, when you see the rise of white supremacy, when you see the number one domestic terror threat, when you see Andrew Anglin, when you see Nick Fuentes dining with Trump, who still, by the way, is a 2024 Republican presidential nominee, right, until maybe he dies or or DeSantis tries to shiv him, uh, you have to realize that this is not the French. And then what I tell folks is when I use this type of harsh language, it's not being me being partisan. When I say that the GOP is a radicalized and weaponized death cult, I want you to look at the evidence. They are a playground and a a gala for hate mongers, anti-Semites and traitors. And speaking about a gala, just over the weekend in New York, again, a major story that everyone's now forgotten. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald Trump Jr., Steve Bannon, some of the leading white nationalists, the the owners of V-Dare. We're at the gala for the New York Young Republicans, uh, you know, Upper East Side Gala, where they drank very expensive alcohol that I'm sure they find in the Rust Belt and they wore expensive clothes. I'm sure moms and pops at the Rust Belt also wear where they openly talked about supporting the coup. And Marjorie Taylor Greene said if me and Steve Bannon had planned it, we would have won and we would have armed, been armed. And they give her an applause. And she is. is not the fringe, John. She is the present and future. Like I warned. Two years ago, people think I'm crazy, but my batting average has been pretty damn accurate. She is Mm -hmm. the base and she controls Kevin McCarthy, who desperately needs her support to somehow become House leader. Let's see if he becomes House leader, but he needs her and her validation to become House leader, not the other way around.
1: You're right. I mean, I've been saying that she she's the Speaker of the House. I mean, it doesn't matter Mm. who the Speaker is. Marjorie Taylor Greene will be the Speaker of the House, and I'm very comfortable with that. I, I've reached a point now where um, I don't long for the days of reasonable Republicans who are merely wrong about things anymore. I'm ready for Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Jim Jordan and Matt Gates to be the face of the modern Republican Party, or for Gates the extremely large forehead of the Republican Party. The rest can be the face. I mean, I I, I kind of feel like you know, the media's got to stop pussyfooting around about what these people are and actually call them out. And by doing that, it it just comes down to both sides have got to be, the media's got to ask them to either disavow this or not. We saw McCarthy come out and say four times outside the White House the lie that Donald Trump has disavowed Nick Fuentes, which has still never happened. Nope. (laughs) No big disavowal of Kanye West, disavowal of, of the statements, but not of the guy itself. And it seems like... Just as it seems like just as Twitter needs these anti-Semites to keep engagements going, to get the libs angry. That's what it's all about, right? Get the it's libs mad it. and it's going to more clicks, more clicks, more clicks. But at the same time, the Republican Party needs it, too. They can't go forward without these bigots and they know it. So they just try to find ways to recycle the bigotry. We were talking in the last hour about how, you know, most conventional forms of homophobia we grew up with don't work anymore. So suddenly, it's all about grooming and drag brunch. Like, they're going to have to find ways to recycle the hate.
5: Yeah, to bring it back full circle. It's a reboot, right? They've been doing this ever since Brown versus Board of Education and the end of segregation. And they've made schools the cultural epicenter of their ongoing war. It always comes back to race, right? And so Coming back full circle, it's a reboot. And now they're like, hmm, let's use schools as a battleground and let's go against black women and CRT and history and trans. And what's the one that really stuck? They're like, "Okay, we're losing some folks by banning books by black authors. By the way, they're still doing it. You know what? People are terrified of trans. They think it's icky and gross. So now let's terrify suburban parents, upper middle class parents, white women and some liberals And warn them that schools will make their son chop off their penis and become a girl. And that's how Yunkin won here. And Democrats did not have a counter. I kept warning my friends because I'm here in Virginia. I'm like, yo, he's going to win. You need to counter this. They didn't counter it. And now, openly, Christopher Rufo, a right-wing filmmaker and activist who... (laughs) this is what i always laugh about because i'm with you john i want my racism out in the open i want to grab it i want to taste it i want to smell it i don't like this dog whistles i don't want to you know just tap dance around and i don't want you know economic anxiety that the media just (laughs) do everything it can to do a both sides analysis argument poor people by the way poor poor people voted for hillary
1: yes poor people voted for hillary overwhelmingly it was never about economic anxiety
5: Yeah. Yes. And so when it's so out in the open that you're dining with a white nationalist, uh, literally a person who praises Putin, a person who makes Holocaust jokes. Right. When you have the people of v- when you're taking selfies at a gala with the owners of VDR, a virulent anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant website. And these are the leaders of the political party. It's very hard to sugarcoat it. And then for the rest of us, we're like, good. Now the rest of you are seeing what we've been warning about. This is who they are. Take them literally and take them seriously. I always joke that it's like it's a James Bond movie in which the James Bond villain in the first ten minutes before the naked golden girls are dancing, J- the James Bond villain just finds James Bond and says, "Hey, hey, hey, uh, <laughs> let me tell you my plot." And James Bond's like, "No, no, no." He goes, "No, no, let me. I have a. I have a slideshow. Here you go. This is my plot." And now uh, you could stop me if you want. You could save $250 million and uh, you don't have to even promote the movie. We could save two and a half hours. You want to just stop me? Here's the plot. And meanwhile, all of our institutions are like, hmm, both
1: sides are extreme. And you and me are just banging your head against the wall. That's it. That's it. They have to, right? The media has to. The media can't run the risk of losing readership by calling a spade a spade. So they've got to play dumb about it as well and talk about economic anxiety. And I mean, it just seems sort of like... The, the capitalist need for the clicks mm. for the ratings for the eyeballs before I let you go sir I've kept you up very late and I appreciate go ahead and I
5: know you okay. have to go but do we have a minute to talk Andor, or, or we, am I out? we
1: have a minute because I saved the most important uh, a topic for the end of our time together and thank you for staying up late season one of Andor, You know, when I was a boy, a film would open and they would discuss what the director's trying to say. Now they just talk about how much money it made opening weekend. And so many yep. people have written so many stories about how Andor's numbers weren't there, uh, that they're not talking about the brilliance of the show and the excellence of the storytelling or the fact that as of today, um, friend of this show, Diego Luna, just became the first Star Wars actor since Alec Guinness to get a Golden Globe nomination.
5: Oh, sweet. I'm so happy he's a fan of the show. What makes it it so exquisite is that right-wing fascists and MAGA think it's the most anti-woke show even though Andor is the wokest show on TV. It is a giant middle finger to authoritarianism, to fascism, to occupation. It is deliberately intentionally written that way. And if you see that show, what it shows you is the cost of occupation, both on the occupier and the occupied. The heroes are average Joes and Janes like you and me. None of them have Jedi superpowers. None of them have lightsabers. But it shows you the power of what happens when otherwise broken people, broken due to occupation, unite around shared values and selfish people become selfless and take on an empire. And, And the theme of the show is what will cause a selfish, manipulative hero like uh, Andor to then become a selfless martyr for a cause? A- and it's a bunch of average Joe? spoiler alert, who in Rogue One team up, martyr themselves to give a vital piece of information that brings down the Death Star. Without them, Luke Skywalker, Leia, and Han will have nothing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's a story of a, a refugee who is a mm. murderer, who then becomes a radical revolutionary devoted to helping others and and uh, aside from the storytelling where it's sort of like four Star Wars movies stitched together into one season I mean you have well here they are doing the mission where they're trying to rob a payroll now he's in jail He, he got picked up for the wrong crime and you know aside from the fun of the storytelling and the three episode arcs that they do it's Definitely the most political Star Wars since the prequels. And I I don't see how any right wingers can watch this show for a second and think this show with the the Latino lead, the two lesbians who are helping him and all the rich people who are secretly working behind the scenes, even though they're wealthy, to take down the authoritarian empire. I, I, I don't know any right wing guys who've watched it. Yeah, and the funny thing is, is when
5: I saw the show, it's it's a good Rorschach test, I think, for everyone, but it, it shows you it's universal. I thought it was Palestine and Israel. I've been there three times, and I'm like, oh, they got the occupation down cold. Other people say it's Ukraine, other people say it's Haiti. Uh, you know, George Lucas said he was inspired by what was happening in Vietnam. So it's a giant yeah. middle finger to occupiers, authoritarians, and fascists. And I'm so glad you mentioned that one scene where spoiler alert, but don't worry, we're not spoiling too much. And or at this part of the journey thinks, you know what, I'm going to get my money, I'm going to get laid, I'm going to go like, you know, retire at the resort. And it shows you that fascism and fascists come after everyone. You can't escape it. Even your wealth won't protect you. And this guy then gets arrested and jailed thanks to bureaucratic stupidity and cruelty. And he doesn't get jailed for all the illegal ish he does. He just happens exactly. to be in the wrong place in the wrong it's time. It's so
1: Dickensian. It's so Dickensian. He gets away with this incredible heist. You can't believe this is like episode six and it's already this good. And then after the heist, he's just walking down the street and gets thrown in jail for doing nothing. The Irony is so deep, but that's how it works. That's, and that's they're, they're how they're fascism
5: gonna... works also. You think your wealth will protect you until it doesn't. You think your whiteness will protect you until it doesn't. You think that's your right. friendships will protect you until it doesn't. Because fascism plays for all the marbles. It corrupts everything. So every single person has a role to resist fascism. And that's what Andrew shows you, that every single person and in that show, it's the average Joes, the workers, the poor, the people are stepped upon, the prisoners, all that's of right. them Find courage, and fight back.
1: Uh, Wajahat Ali, I wish I could have you on this show every week. What's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your work?
5: Uh, I write for Daily Beast Medium. Uh, me and Danielle host a podcast called Democracy Ish, and you can find me on Twitter until it goes down at Wajihat Ali.
1: <laughs> We're not leaving. We didn't leave America when a petulant millionaire at birth took over briefly. I'm not going to leave Twitter either. Watch. Thank you so so much, and I love your podcast. My best to Danielle. And I'm thank and you. Thanks so much on. for having me. I'm so glad your little one is doing well, too. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Okay, we are
1: at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. I'm going to pull myself out of my fentanyl haze for a second to bring on the great Natalia Reagan. Now, you know her if you listen to this show, anthropologist, primatologist, actor, writer, producer, host, comedian. Uh, occasional dancing McNugget. There, there. She can do anything. You may have fallen in love with Natalia's brilliance uh, as an all-star host for Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk. And every now and then, we are lucky to have her join us and uh, enlighten us with inst- in new installments of "Shit You Can't Say." Natalia, Ray, welcome back. Shit you so can't say.
2: Thank you so much for having me. No, you, you know, I mean, you had. can't say it, but should you say it? It's more about like you know, it's not about here to make you feel bad. It's more about make you go, "Hmm, am I making the right
1: call?" No, you know, no, let's just- let's, let's there, there's a bit of liberal guilt police here. Let's be honest. I mean, I had never really thought about the phrase circle the wagons being problematic until you pointed <laughs> out how anti-indigenous I was by saying that. So I'm I'm sorry. Yeah. I yeah. Yeah.
2: You were putting the cock in Caucasian because we know that Caucasian right. also has very problematic uh, let's say racist roots. Uh sure. so we're we're <laughs> we're here to to do a little schooling and um there's nothing wrong with that. So it's a way. I'm always excited.
1: Please, what 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 popular trope or colloquialism are you going to ruin for us tonight, Natalia?
2: Okay, well, this is one that I I catch myself saying even still, even and I have to slap my hand and go bad anthropologist, low man on the totem pole,
5: low man
2: on a totem pole. First of all, is incorrect because it was created uh, or well first brought up by a humorist um, in 1941, and he just thought it was kind of a fun thing to say. But he was referring. Low man on the totem pole is supposed to be the person that is kind of like the bottom of the barrel, you know, getting the dregs. Not really, you know, he's definitely not running the show. Uh, And so, but oftentimes with with totem poles, which are uh, you know produced by indigenous uh, peoples and can be anything from you know um, animals representing you know uh you know crest animals of their family um stories about their um uh their different clans and and background but uh oftentimes if it is a hierarchical system the the greatest or the highest in in I'm using air quotes it's, it would be at the bottom because it would be the okay. foundation of the of the totem pole. But oftentimes it's not even in a hierarchical system. So it's it's just incorrect. But also, mm-hmm. like, let's not appropriate that. That's not ours to take. Like, step away. No, no need for yeah. that. Right. And uh, and these are sacred items to indigenous people. And there's multiple tribes that use um, and, and produce totem poles and they're beautiful you still see them now in the pacific northwest and they're not mat- they can't last forever because they're made from you know tree and the trees can't you know they eventually rot over time so even the ones that do exist are, are oftentimes sought to be preserved because you know we want to keep them around and so let's just scrap this language that is incorrect and it. also like you know we don't need to drag that
1: let me play devil's advocate for a second, yes. because I, I totally sure. appreciate this as as a liberal who likes to guilt white people. Uh, I totally mm-hmm. appreciate yes. it. But but let of me course. let me just could you make the argument <laughs> that an expression like low man in the totem pole is actually a sign of how much indigenous culture has pervaded our own, and that it's actually an homage, a, a cultural reference, rather than um, an unthinking uh, uh, racist trope. Is, is there is there an argument argument to be made by saying, well, it just goes to show how much I I I have you know knowledge. Of First Nations culture that I would use that expression totem pole because you know there'll be people out there This is always the case with these expressions People it's the difference between racism and bigotry, right? You you can have no hate in your heart, but still say ignorant shit that makes the problem worse So so is there a way that you could I don't know somehow um, finagle this or or am I, I going I, off the reservation? I get reservation, what
2: you're saying right? Oh, I shouldn't have said going, going off the reservation. From. I
1: should not have said going off the reservation. I'm so sorry <laughs>
2: well that uh that's actually next that's 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 uh we're going to come up come to that soon uh but this is trying to get a scalp
1: lady you're just trying to get a scalp that's also i shouldn't be talking that way yeah sorry Oof.
2: You uh, you're getting into the red. OK, so H. Allen Smith <laughs> oh. came up with this term in 1941. I don't think he did this as a homage to indigenous
5: culture. <laughs> I think the intent
2: because we, we talk about impact versus intent. Right. Yes, I don't think yes. the intent here was I really revere the indigenous people. So I want to use this term. This term is not meant to, to say something good about somebody. Right. you know, it's, it's meant right. to be a derogatory term. So they're pulling from uh, a group of people that have been historically marginalized uh, and uh, well, let's just face it. A genocide was carried out against indigenous Correct. people for hundreds of years. Even now, uh, it's still a, a problem looking at reservations across the U.S. now. So, um yeah, it's, it's the intent was not to, I think, you know, it was, was not a tip of the hat or a raising of the glass to indigenous culture. It was it was meant in You're a derogatory right. way and we should just ditch it. Right. And I have some alternatives because I know everybody likes a little uh, alternative. I uh, I try to when every time because I, I, I catch myself trying to say that sometimes and I'm like, ooh, ooh, lower on the ladder of life, monkey at the bottom <laughs> of the barrel. Last picked on the kickball team and sad trombone, Carl, sad trombone, (laughs) Carl. I'm trying. I'm working to get that into modern day uh, vernacular. I I don't know if it's going to stick. Help me out here, John.
1: I love it. I love it. I mean, you know, you're making me think of how many of these other expressions that we just blithely repeat, like the short bus, you know, things like that. <laughs> that's yeah. Well, devastating insult yeah. to developmentally disabled kids. But let's go ahead and let's just borrow from the culture for a quick little trophy line.
2: Yeah. And that's that's kind of what is going on here. And um, and the next one I had was uh, off the reservation, which you already mentioned and how Ooh, that, yes. yeah, that's that one. Definitely. uh, The intent there was not good. Uh, The impact is worse. And essentially, they're referring to uh, it it was used as a term in um, to talk about those that were stepping out of line. Uh, Indians that were not on a reservation were seen as um, being indignant and um, not you know, following directions. And we know that, you know, reservations and the, the whole, again, genocide carrying out, out against indigenous people uh, was was terrible. So let's just step away from that altogether. But it was used uh, for the first time in 1909 uh, as a way of um, just kind of using it as a colloquialism. And it just continued on from there. And really? we see it, you know, said all the time in meetings. I hear it all the time. I mean, even in and and I know it doesn't. And, and this is where intent sort of has strayed. Intent has not is is not necessarily meant to be nobody's trying to hurt anybody but i hear it in meetings even i've heard anthropologists say it and i'm like no no go off the reservation ah. <laughs> we got to uh think of different ways of of uh you know people going rogue going awol yeah, you know yeah. renegade ronda come on but it's it's not it's not the way to go so um going, again going rogue, think about going where rogue coming fine. from.
0: going yeah. rogue is going-
2: perfect because it basically is people that are just like going off on their own we talk about um you know democrats or republicans that are not you know staying within party lines that's when Mm -hmm. they use the term off off the res and (laughs) you know it's, it's a it's a very touchy subject uh and to this day because there are still reservations now that are still without clean water food resources so this is not something that is oh you're just being butthurt about something that happened 150 years ago this is happening now
3: Mm-hmm. You know, a lot Absolutely. of indigenous
2: populations were very hurt and still suffering from COVID nineteen, uh, disproportionately right. to their white counterparts here in the
1: U.S. Natalia Reagan, it's so good to have you with us. Thank you so much you for joining us. You
2: bloody bastards!
1: <laughs> my my thing I want to ban is uh, the media is calling calling MERS camel flu. They're they're they're, yeah. they're calling it the camel flu, and health officials are warning people coming back from the World Cup in Qatar may be infected with camel flu. It's it's very contagious. death rate. There's no treatment for it. But the media, by calling it the camel flu, seem to be minimizing it, confusing people, and being racist all at the same time.
2: Yeah, I think we should ditch. I mean, I I get that it's where it it originated in, or we're associating it with in that area, but that doesn't mean you get to kind of tack on it a fun little nickname that then leads others to blame that region later on because, let's just put it this way, viruses don't respect borders. You know what I mean? It is viruses <laughs> without borders. They do what they want. Right. Um, that's why I went. You know, calling it like the Wuhan, you know, flu or whatever. It, it was right. so, so so problematic and did nothing but a disservice to those who were really suffering. So you know, but, but
1: even the name, stop. the real name, is Middle East Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. It's not a flu. It's a, like a coronavirus, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. That's kind of encouraging xenophobic as well. You know, the Spanish flu came from Kansas. So we'll find out yep. where the Middle yep. East Respiratory Chicken Syndrome actually came from. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but before I let you go um, in our final in our final minutes. Uh, for those who don't know, can you tell us about P-22? Uh, I've oh, always man. heard of this legendary wildcat this, in, 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 in L.A. who's now been caught. We have like a minute.
2: Well, yes. Okay, so he is a mountain lion that has been. uh, He's 12 years old, which is very old for mountain lions to live uh, in the wild. But um, he has been living in a nine miles, uh, nine square mile area of Los Angeles and Griffith Park. And normally, mountain lions have 150 miles to to roam. And so he's never found a mate. He's been, but he's been able to thrive there. And even you know, hanging out in Los Feliz, more like Los Feline. Uh, But he's been, you know, making it his home and doing really well there in los angeles i love seeing los angeles coexist with this apex predator however given yeah. his advanced age he's recently attacked some dogs on leash and it's right. you know questionable how his how his health is and so they have captured him and hopefully uh, determining next steps for him whether you know it's a sanctuary or where he's going to live out his golden years because he is i i don't want to get emotional because i i love this cat so much but he's yeah. a he, he's proof that humans can live alongside urban wildlife successfully.
1: Yeah. He's, he's actually so old. I heard they just, they just gave him a show on CNN. <laughs> Natalia Reagan, how do our <laughs> listeners follow you at our final seconds? How do we keep up with all your work?
2: You can find this cougar on Twitter at Natalia13Reagan. <laughs> Same with Instagram. Also on TikTok at uh, Behold Natalia. I have a show at Flappers on Friday. If you want to come check it out, come find right me.
1: On. Thank you, and thanks, Wajahat Ali, and all of our guests, Chris and Thea. I'm John Fuglesang. We'll be back tomorrow on SiriusXM Progress. Peace.